Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. And we are recording in the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in Toronto on the Dish with One Spoon territory. Today we're talking about cultural conflicts that exist in classrooms and in institutions of higher education more generally. Sitting in studio with us is Dr. Anita Jack-Davies. She's a university professor and a professional academic who lives and works in both downtown Toronto and in Kingston, Ontario. In Toronto, she's the Education and Awareness Facilitator in Ryerson's Office of the Vice President, Equity and Community Inclusion. And in Kingston, she teaches at Queen's University in the Department of Geography and Planning. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Thank you've you. been here a little less than a year at Ryerson. How long were you uh, in Kingston? How, oh, you're still teaching in Kingston? Yes. How long have you yes. been teaching there for? I've been in Kingston at Queen's University since 2013 in a teaching capacity. Hmm. But I did my master's and doctoral work in the Faculty of Education at Queen's. So I've been there so for a while. So you've been there a while. A while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the mm-hmm. biggest difference? So you come to Toronto. You're at Ryerson University, this giant urban campus. What are the, some of the biggest differences you've, you've experienced? Well, I was born in Toronto. So Toronto is home. But over the years, Kingston has also become home. Mm. And so I feel like I am leaving one home for another home. But when I come back to Toronto, Toronto has changed quite a bit in the last uh, 15 years. The diversity is is mind-blowing, diversity in terms of culture, um, but also in terms of just how people express themselves. I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy seeing. And sometimes I just sit back and I just, at Balzac's, I just have a coffee and I just watch the students walk by and they've got their ripped jeans and they've got, it's just, it's just amazing. They show up as themselves, and I think that's the message that we are trying to promote in the Office of the Vice President, Equity and Community Inclusion. We want students to know you do not have to change who you are to be here at Ryerson. You can actually show up as who you are and not only be accepted, but but excel. And it's interesting that that's like a novel idea, right? That that's something that might not have always been the case. I think that's um, particularly the case in camp- on campuses um, that are predominantly white. Uh, and not that these campuses are, are bad in and of themselves, but when you are, let's say you are a racialized individual and, and you show up to a campus and you do not necessarily see yourself reflected either in the student body or in the administration or, or anywhere else, for, for example, in the curriculum, it can become a very daunting place to go back to each and every day. So, yeah. So is that what you mean when you talk about culture clashes in the classroom? Culture clash is a really interesting concept. We often think about culture clash in terms of international students who are coming to Canada. And we know that there are a host of um, issues that come up in terms of issues surrounding language or cultural norms. But I like to think about culture clash um, relating to students from underrepresented groups. And the example that I like to use is first-generation students. So we know that first-generation students to the academy are often feeling as though they may not have the support at home because they are the first ones in their families to attend university. So coming to the academy means that they have to orient themselves um, surrounding a very sort of surrounding very middle class norms with respect to the academy, number one, mm-hmm. but also surrounding um, ideas of should I be here? 
do I deserve this? How do I, you know, uh, how do I choose my courses? What do I want to major in? The research literature tells us that first-generation students access resources at a lesser rate than than other students who, you know, uh, are, are sort of um, aware and familiar with the norms of the academy. They may not have as many mentors because they might not understand the importance of building those mentorship relationships. And so I think that um, we need to think about the fact that those supports might need to be in place ahead of time so that we can sort of preempt uh, that gap that might exist between what the student might be wanting versus what we can provide for students. And when you're working in an area like equity and community inclusion, um, how, in what ways do you contribute to that? How does your role um, contribute to, to making space on campus that way? Right. I wanted to mention that, first of all, the office, um, the, the work that this office does is is trailblazing, number one. Um uh, Daryl Bowden often talks about being in brave spaces where we are talking about things that might make people feel uncomfortable. Dr. Denise O'Neill-Green, who is our uh, vice president, is uh, the first and only vice president uh, equity community inclusion in the country, which I think is, is phenomenal. Mm. But I think the thing that really strikes me is when we did the uh, the White Privilege Conference, over and over again, I heard her say, we are going to be talking about things that will move us to a place uh, of better understanding rather than staying in a place that is safe. I remember being at the Viola Desmond Awards. And as a black Canadian woman born in Toronto to Caribbean parents, my parents are from Trinidad, that award ceremony was the first time in my life where I was in a room with that many people who honored a black woman in my life. Wow. So that was that was a, a thing for me. So, uh, you know, we're talking about sort of these larger um, institutional conversations. But what happens when those difficult conversations are in the classroom? What do you do as an instructor, as a university professor to facilitate that conversation or to support students mm-hmm. in the classroom? I think as an instructor, my first order of business is to try to get to know my students as best as I can. So one of the first assignments I tend to give, and I I tend to teach in the area of sort of gender studies and social justice type courses, race and racism, that, you know, the the fun stuff, right? You're always having these conversations. (laughs) That's right. Mm -hmm. But some of the first um, conversations that I have with students in terms of, let's say, a writing assignment is, tell me about who you are. What, What do you feel comfortable sharing? Why are you taking this course? What does social justice mean to you? How will you use this in your work? And when I read through those essays, I'm amazed at what I learn. And I will give you an example. I remember a student wrote to me about the fact that her father was African. And I, I looked at her name and I went, African, my goodness, this is a white student not realizing that this was a, a, a student who identified as mixed race. But to me, this was a white student. Had I not read her essay, I wouldn't have known that her father was African. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have known that she had all of this international experience. So I think the first order of business is to get to know who the students are. I think the second order of business is not to make assumptions about who students are. But I also think it's important for the students to know who I am and how I am coming to the work. 
And so I try to bring in my identity as much as I can. Again, I'm in gender studies, so it's 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 accepted, right? That I that I can do that. Uh, I also think another thing that really helps students is for me to be very explicit about my expectations in terms of the academic pieces. And I mention this because oftentimes students will say to me, I feel like when I go into the classroom, I'm being set up to fail or I'm being set up to sort of not get a good mark. And and so rather than set them up further, I say, okay, you can perform well, you're going to have to work hard, but here's a rubric for how I'm going to be assessing you when you do critical work, when you critique things. And I will actually put that rubric in my syllabus so that they don't have to ask for it. It's given to them on the first day of the course. And you mentioned the importance of... um being explicit about your expectations, but also bringing your own kind of social location into things. Yes. Um, I know when I teach sociology, um, as a white man at the front of the room, if I talk about sexism or racism, mm. um, it doesn't seem like I have a stake in it in the sense that I feel like my students are less likely to challenge me. Right. Um, as in your experience as a black woman at the front of the room, yes. have you felt that students, when you're teaching difficult material, mm. um, do, you, do you feel that, is, is, how, what is that experience like? I feel like that's um it's a great question. It's it's sometimes a double ed- double-edged sword. And what I mean by that is sometimes um I've had evaluations and and racialized faculty members and w- women in particular are marked down quite harshly on student evaluations and this is what the the research literature tells us. But in addition to that, I, I sometimes get two things. Um, they will often drop the doctor off my name if they hand in assignments. Um, sometimes my name will not be spelled right, or they might not even put the right name. So they might put doctor, not doctor, they might put Jack as my first name <laughs> mm-hmm. and not necessarily take the time to actually get my name right. So these are what we call microaggressions. Mm. Um, the other thing that I get is if I do mention race, because I'm, I'm a black woman, um, I've, also got, I've also received the feedback that I was biased because I mentioned race. But if a white female instructor mentioned race, that term biased wouldn't be there. I, I, I mm-hmm. don't think to the same extent. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's just a feeling that you get that I can't really put into words. It's just knowing when I feel like I have to walk into that space and perform at a much higher level because I feel as though I can't get away with the things that, let's say, an, an older white male instructor could could get away with in terms of male privilege and, and white privilege. I just could not get away with, with some, some things. So in terms of um, all of those things you're naming, right, the, the microaggressions, the evaluations that indicate bias and that right. feeling that you're talking about, is there a way for instructors who might be in a similar situation to prepare themselves for that? Mm. Is there a way to... Um, to support yourself, yes. take care of yourself in the classroom. Another great question. Um, one thing that I've done in the past is, after let's say, and, and not all the inci- not all incidents are negative, but after some particularly brutal course evaluations, I got together with a, a white female colleague and we were trading notes, and I saw that some of it had to do with gender, and I because we were comparing evaluations, and I saw that some of it had to do with race. 
And what that did for me is it made me feel a little bit better in the sense that I, I felt like, okay, I'm doing this work and this is part of it. I'm not going to reach everyone all the time. So that helped. Um, but also, you know, when something happens like that, my family's from Trinidad and, and we, I pick up the phone and I call my family and I call family mm -hmm. in Boston mm -hmm. and Trinidad and England and I say, I need to talk to you about something that happened in the classroom or something that happened, you know, in the office. And and they give me the goods <laughs> and I'm good to go until the next thing happens and then I call, call again, right? So that, that family support is important. And then that self-care. Um, so one thing I do when I get my evaluations, I don't read them right away. Mm. I wait, I prepare myself for them, and I say, Anita, you know, take this with a grain of salt. And I take what I can from them in terms of it being a learning opportunity. And the other pieces that are, let's say, derogatory or insulting, I say, that has nothing to do with me, and and I move on. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, too, the experience that you're articulating. Um, this is at the front of the room as, as a professor. Right. Uh, at the same time, you have students in your class who are probably having a very similar experience. If mm. they um, have a racialized background or are underrepresented or a first generation. Right. Um, when you think about, I mean, if you think about your experience in graduate school. Right. Um, right. And, you know, um, how do we support students who... Um, you know, I might not understand in any way the kinds of experiences that they're having. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, recently, I wrote about my experiences um, in graduate school, and, and that was a difficult piece for me to write because, um, and this was picked up by the National Post and the Huffington Post, and how do you write about something where you run the risk of being seen as the angry black woman, mm. right? So mm. even if I'm claiming my truth, I'm always sort of boxed in by this... Stereotype, stereotype, the stereotype that, that I can't get rid of. And that stereotype precedes me before I go into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I find myself saying, you know, if if a student insults me or does something that's disrespectful, I find myself just really sort of sort of sanitizing everything that I do in that moment because I know a hundred eyes are on me. And if I say, you know, this the wrong way, I become that angry black woman stereotype. I, if there was one thing that would have helped me as a racialized black student and the first in my family to obtain a doctoral degree, I felt as though many of the practices and many of the policies were not written down anywhere. So I came to the academy learning about this objectivity that everybody speaks about, but it wasn't an objective place. It was a space of, well, this committee will decide X or that person will decide Y. And I would look into the policy documents to see, oh, well, let me see what the policy says. And lo and behold, there was nothing to be found. Mm -hmm. So for me, that myth um, of this, the academy being this space where everything is measured, maybe I came in with that myth and maybe that's something that students who aren't first generation already know. Um, so if I were to teach, let's say, my daughter about the academy, I would say to her, relationships are extremely important. Those relationships that you build with faculty members and other colleagues will sustain you throughout your career. But I had to learn that the hard way. I had to learn that in the moment. And I think that for first-generation students, there are so many things that we're just learning about in the nick of time or sometimes too late. 
And by too late, I mean opportunities to either publish or work collaboratively with colleagues. Those opportunities might be lost because we may not understand in the moment that, oh, that was the time when you were supposed to go over there and meet that person who could collaborate with you on that project. Yeah, the hidden curriculum. That's exactly it. The hidden curriculum I I found was something that was elusive And it seemed as though it was reserved for particular students. And again, it had to do with gender. It had to do with race. But it also had to do with students who knew how to, quote unquote, play the game. And if you don't know how to play the game, I believe that you're left behind. Uh, In the piece that you had mentioned that you had written that was was pretty widely distributed. Thank you. uh, One of the comments that you or one of the concepts that you kind of emphasize in that piece is the idea of other mothering. Yes. Um, Yes. What is that? And and, and why is that so important for underrepresented or or marginalized students? The concept of other mothering comes from the African-American literature, from in particular black feminist literature. And other mothering is a concept that sort of dates back to um, African societies where Africans have a saying where it takes a village to to raise a child. And so the idea is that we come together to do what needs to be done to raise children. So the idea of other mothering in the academy is, um, let's say I go to the academy and if, if I might, you know, be, it's a new culture for me. So knowing that other mothering says, you know, who can we identify in the culture of the academy who can come in to support me? And other mothering doesn't mean that the person has to be female. Curtis, you could be an other mother for me because you are looking out for my well-being in the academy. Now, there is a critique of other mothering, and the critique is that, especially when we talk about racialized faculty, the idea is, Racialized faculty um, shouldn't take on a quote-unquote mothering role with students, and that's a critique Mm -hmm. that I heard recently. And so the idea is if I'm a black professor and there is a black student, that doesn't mean that I need to go and other mother this particular student. So I think the middle ground could be when students and, and faculty members build positive relationships, I think other mothering has the opportunity to flourish. But it's not, you know, we're not tokenizing students and professors where it's like, okay, so you're an Asian student with an Asian professor and other mothering needs to happen here. Right. (laughs) It has to it has to be an organic thing. But I think what my argument was uh, was basically because many of us are coming from cultures that um, that focused and stressed cooperation to come into the academy, which is a very competitive space that is almost you know, the antithesis of my home culture. And so I'm coming from a culture that says, you share, nothing is yours, we we do this together, to a culture where it's like, no, 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 no. Very individualistic, everything is yours, you do not share, right? Um, and other mothering might come in and say, you know, in this culture, in the academy, in order to make it here, these are some of the things that you may need to think about. So it's basically a form of mentoring, But I would argue it's mentoring, keeping the cultural pieces in mind. So as a black woman, I might need to go get my hair done when I when I go to a a predominantly white campus. And other mother might say, this is where the hairdresser is. This is where you can go and get, you know, Caribbean food in a way that, let's say, another professor who doesn't understand those cultural nuances might not be able to. So I wonder what you would say um, 
If there's someone listening right now who's thinking, okay, you know, I'm hearing all of this, but I don't come from a critical discipline. I'm not sure that it's safe for me to say things about my identity in the Mm -hmm. classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like maybe I'm doing nothing. Uh, What what would you say to them? Well, what I would say is, first of all, you're listening, and and that's, that's a start. And the second thing I would say is, this is a journey. And this is not a sprint. This is work that is difficult. It's work that I had to learn. I I wasn't born with this perspective. In fact, when I was um, a teacher in Toronto's Jane Finch community, I went for an interview. And when they asked me the quote unquote equity question, I didn't know what to say. Hmm. Because at that point, even though I am a black Canadian woman, I did not have that critical lens. It's not until I went to grad school that that lens was developed. And then once I understood why I was seeing what I was seeing in my school, a light bulb went on and I went, I really have to do my dissertation Hmm. on this. But it it took years for me to develop my perspective. So I would say it's never too late, first of all. Um, You start where you are. uh, You bring yourself and don't feel like you need to be anybody else. And I think the most important message is we're not here to deny anyone's identity. So never never be ashamed of who you are and never be ashamed of what you know in this moment. I think the, the, the critical thing for me is are you willing to change in terms of are you willing to learn and unlearn those, those pieces that might be oppressive or that might marginalize others. And I think that's all we can really ask in, in this area. We, all three of us sitting at this table, are in disciplines where these conversations are difficult, but they are common. We, mm-hmm. have, them, right. we have them frequently. Um, yes. If I'm a professor in mathematics right. uh, and I say to you, you know, I agree this is really important, mm. but, you know, I teach math that doesn't really apply. Right. Um, if you're, you're the education and awareness outreach yes. person. Um, yes. What do you say to that professor? I would say, in the words of Dr. Audrey Kobayashi, a member of my dissertation committee, race is always on the table. Mm. There are no situations that are de-raced. And so it, in the quote-unquote hard sciences, and I, I don't even want to, re- re- you know, repeat that term, mm. These issues, issues of gender, um, these issues are on the table and we may not, it may not come to the fore, but it has to be brought to the fore. (laughs) It's not going to come to the fore by itself, right? And so I would say uh, our office is here, Office of the Vice President, President, Equity and Community Inclusion, and that's my role. That's my job. My job is to reach out to individuals, to reach out to instructors, to reach out to staff members who might be struggling or might have questions, and to sit with them and to say, this is what I can help you with. Tell me what you're working on. Let's work on this together. And as a facilitator, if I cannot help you, let me find the resources on the rest of the campus or outside the university who can possibly offer you support. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Jack Davies. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone at RTA Productions, John Gerardo, Adam Horonchachewski, and Sarah Van Voet. This podcast is funded by the Learning and Teaching Office at Ryerson. If you have any feedback on today's episode or if you have a teaching idea that you want to share with us, give us a shout. It's podagogies at ryerson.ca.